Hey everybody, this is Ruben, and you're listening to Amazing Stories. Where is she? She's in the bedroom. She's fine. What the hell are you doing here? I brought a guest, Madame Ostrakova. She's in the bedroom with Mary Claire. Madame who? Sorry. You all right? Yeah, no, quite all right. Thank you. And the mirror seems undamaged. Mary Claire phoned me, said there was someone here, and I had to come home at once. I asked her to do that. You might have asked her to give me a hint. She wasn't a hostage or something. I've just driven like a madman through Rush Hour Paris. She's fine, I promise you. But she did make the call more abrupt than I would have wished. I knew there was no point in calling back. You'd already be on your way. On my way is right. The trip usually takes 30 minutes. I did it in 15. <sighs> so who is this Madame Ostrakova? She has an astonishing story for us. But we'll let her finish her jelly chicken breast and mint tea first. Your wife has been most gentle with her. Then we must take her somewhere quiet. Quiet? Yes, quiet and secluded and safe. Mary Claire says there's a farmhouse near Arras you have access to. You've been at the embassy here how long now? Eight months. So you know your way around. Your access is good. Good enough for what? To find out all you can about a Russian who was here until some weeks ago. He may be gone now. Oleg Kirov. Don't you know it all, Max? You've read my letter to the General. That gave us the main facts, Madame Ostrakova, but I would be happy if you could provide more detail. Your impressions of this man. Let us know how he worked. Detail. Like the fact he sweated a lot. He stank of it. Yes. And how he first approached you. You are Maria Andreevna Ostrakova, born in Leningrad on May the 8th, 1927. Those were his very first words. No greeting, just that. This was at my bus stop. He said, don't get on the bus. I told him to be on his way, and he said he had news of my daughter. We went to a cafe. He ordered two ham omelettes with bread and two Alsatian beers. He didn't ask if that's what I wanted, and I didn't eat mine. I did drink the beer. I sat pinching the flesh on my wrist till it hurt to keep alert, to keep my temper and my tongue under control. I learned that trick in Moscow. This kind of detail? Exactly that kind. I knew he was from Moscow. It's only a bull. I know what it is, Max. I didn't think the Soviets had sent a monster for me this time. But I haven't been on the farm since I was a girl. Most of my life's been in Paris and Moscow. And he was Moscow. I could smell that on him as well as his own stink. Moscow subways, Moscow trams, Moscow interrogation rooms. Would you describe his manner as that of an interrogator? Well, he had a notebook and in Moscow it would have been a file. But he was no good. Clumsy, his mind kept wandering. I got the feeling he was more scared than I was. He had ginger hair. I have a friend who refers to him as the Ginger Pig. That's him. His name is Oleg Kirov. This notebook, did you write much in it? No. 
He read from it. Read out the hard facts. That your husband had defected to Paris in 1950, that you were allowed to follow him in 1956? Yes, because my husband was dying of cancer. And because you agreed to spy for them? I signed a paper to that, but I never did any spying. Well, we know that. And do you know I fell in love with a Jew when my husband was in France and I was still in Russia? A dissident Jew? That I had a daughter with him, that when I was allowed to come to France, I left her behind? Yes, you know that too. You did the right thing. And it must have been a dreadfully difficult choice. But at least you were free. Maybe later you could free your daughter too. (laughs) A dreadfully difficult choice. I haven't known many Englishmen. How did Kirov, the ginger pig... How did he put his proposition about your daughter? Alexandra. She'll be 24 now. More details. Actual words. Please. First, he told me her father, Glickman, the dissident traitor and Jew, those were the pig's actual words, in that order. He told me Glickman was dead. When I asked how he died, he only smiled. I think that was the only time he smiled. And about your daughter? Assuming it had been decided to rid the Soviet Union of her as a disruptive and unsocial element, how would you like your daughter Alexandra to join you here in Paris? Actual words. Detail. He had a mouthful of bread and egg at the time. Did you describe her disruptiveness? She was criminal. Orphanage... Misbehaviour vandalous, rebellious and sexual. Escape, so many months corrective detention. Insulting organs of state security, two years internal exile, 18 months prison, three years internal exile. It was a long list. And then there would be a long list of forms to be filled out at the Soviet embassy at French ministries. All that went smoothly enough. The ginger pig said it would. And the photographs of your daughter? Photographs, yes. But not of my daughter, not Alexandra. I only had them for a few hours. They had to be attached to some of the forms. But you were sure it was not your daughter? You left her when she was very young. A few months old. But already she was Glickman. Her father's features were written on her face. This face was blank. There was none of his fire there. Nothing of me either. So, you wrote to the general... Yes. My husband had told me he could be trusted if I needed help. And the general sent Otto the magician. Here are a couple of details for you. After the magician left, I didn't wash the glass he drank his vodka from. I didn't even smooth out the cushion he'd sat on. I'd fallen in love with him in less than an hour. That's the kind of lonely old fool you're dealing with, Max. And now the magician is dead, and so is the general. And they almost killed you. Detail. It was the first morning I'd put on my winter boots. I can see them dangling off the ground when the little strong one lifted me. The tall one in the leather coat was waving at a car. The car came fast. The little strong one threw me into the road... But not quite accurate, because I was wriggling so much, I suppose, and stronger than he'd imagined. The car had to swerve to hit me. 
but I survived. When I got home from hospital, all I could think to do was sit and wait with my husband's pistol on a cord around my neck, waiting for more assassins, or for the general, or for the magician. An army of one. Till you came. Oleg Kirov, second secretary, returned to Moscow two weeks ago, recalled at short notice to take up a senior appointment which had become vacant unexpectedly. Yes, that's what he would do, offer him promotion. Because he would know Kirov was stupid and greedy enough to believe it and hurry home to have his head chopped off. Have the tapes gone off to London, Kirov's confession and its transcript and pracy. I think the pracy will be enough for our master, Saul Enderby. I imagine he'll read it over and over with wonder and delight. And scepticism. What will become of me, Mix? We will take care of you. Another kind of exile. I don't even know who I am anymore. I'm not Soviet, but I'm no warrior against them. I've had French hens this morning, but I'm not French. I can't begin to imagine being English. I'm not a wife, a lover, a mother. I don't even have a job. You're a brave woman who helped destroy Kirov. He's dead. But not before he led us closer to an even greater enemy, and he too may fall because of your help. Well, I don't want to hear about any great enemies, next. Just keep them away from me. So, who are you, George? I don't understand, Saul. Sherlock Holmes going after the frightful Moriarty? Ahab in pursuit of his great white whale? Oh, I wish I had a worthy enemy, been looking for one for donkey's years. Now, have I got this right? The Madame writes to Vladimir. He sends Otto Leipzig, who tempts Kirov to Hamburg, and there burns him something rotten. Kirov sings. But why? Dirty pictures? Carl is a Puritan, but still, this isn't the 50s. Everyone's allowed a bit of leg sliding these days. Kirov had been incompetent and indiscreet. For that alone, Carla would have destroyed him. With you. Tell me the rest, or I'll tell Carla what you've been up to. Sitting here in a cat house with her pants round her ankles is as good a time to confess as any. Hmm? So, let's remind ourselves of what he had been up to. <laughs> you know, George, our translators have an English that is all their own. I mean, surely Kirov didn't talk like this. As a result of conducting extremely delicate and confidential inquiries, I made the acquaintance... made the acquaintance of the head of the Independent 13th Intelligence Directorate, subordinated to the party's central committee, who is known throughout Moscow Centre only by his work name, Carla. Another brandy, George? No, thank you, sir. Blah, 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 personal congratulation, blah, blah, privileges of trust and freedom, blah, blah. Small wooden hut, monastic atmosphere, no trimmings, and just Kirov and Carla, who, according to Kirov, looked weary... Twitchy, smoking like a chimney, under stress. He always did that. Did what? He was always an excessive smoker. Was he indeed? Now, Comrade Kirov, says Carla, how would you like a posting to Paris? Uh, Kirov would like one very much. Oh, Kirov goes to Paris and is, as you say, George, incompetent and indiscreet. He was no bloody good, was he? No. So why did Carla use him? Because for this particular deal he couldn't trust his own chaps, that you're thinking? It is. Hmm. Almost tragic, that. Anyway, plough on. Here's Kirov in Paris, supposedly setting up cover in the shape of your Madame Ostrakova as her mother for a female agent who was to receive the highest classification of secrecy within the directorate. 
I was, says Kirov, instructed to set aside $10,000 a month from the Paris impress for the purpose of servicing this new and most highly valued agent. The money was to be transferred to a bank in Thun, in the Swiss canton of Bern, to the credit of Dr. Adolf Glaser. Now, this doctor is the nominal account holder, but I believe it is only the work name for a Kala operative at the Soviet embassy whose real name is Grigorev, first secretary. Are you sure, George? Absolutely sure this isn't some devilish Kala plot? My department is already on shaky ground, a startling coup against us by Kala. I rather doubt the department is worth very much to him now. Oh, that's reassuring. What about you? What about me? What might you be worth to him now? Absolutely sure he's not luring you to your own Reichenbach Falls with no miraculous resurrection as it was for Sherlock? Let's go into the garden. Simply a question of whether you want him, so... Well, I want him, all right. I want Carla in the hot seat at Sarat, coughing out his life story. I want our American cousins eating out of my hands. Now, you've been told how things are, George. Honey traps, blackmail, being beastly to the Russians in any way, all frowned upon these days, positively stamped on. Our cabinet idealists are all for detente and open government and other forms of ludicrous balls. Then I suppose the question becomes, how badly do you want him? Hand me a live, talking Carla, and I'll accept him and make my excuses later. Now, you'll need people, I suppose. Babysitters, surveillance, drivers and the like. All the old forbidden toys. Can you find your own? I shall use Toby Estahazi. He'll recruit <laughs> However, don't talk to me about that side of things. Leave me a little blissful ignorance. Money I can help you with. I can lose you in the accounts for years, the way those clowns in Treasury work. But remember, George, if this all turns catastrophic, I'll say it was a ludicrous piece of private enterprise by a senile spy who's lost his marbles. Mr. Smiley. Hello, Mendel. It's lamb chops with mash and peas out of a tin. But I've got a bottle of that claret you like. Excellent. I have a second bottle. Come on in. You've been on a diet? No. You've lost weight? A little bit. I boxed middleweight for the division in my young days. I can imagine that. And you've got what we used to call that staring look. You're thinking about your hands, like we used to say. You're pacing yourself for a big fight. I'm doing research for a book, The History of the Service. Not for publication, of course. It will be for the education of new entrants. Cover? Yes. The research is part of your training for the big fight. The man who was behind Bill Hayden. The biggest traitor of them all. I'm sure Bill would say he was loyal to his own beliefs. And the man who's behind him, you called him Carla, if I remember right. That's not a woman's name. Yes, it was the codename of the first network he ran during the Spanish Civil War. I was in that. In the war, I mean, not a spy network. I know. Of course you do. wonder what you all don't know about me. I was only there a couple of months. And you were on the right side? Yeah, you've got to try, eh? To stay on the right side. Maybe he's leading you on. Yes, possible. Well, he's a clever bugger. But madness can't be ruled out. I used to think that for Carla, nothing mattered but his convictions. But now, 
He maybe tried to protect something that's precious to him. And this precious thing, you think you can use it to reel him in? You look glum. It means using his methods. They've never been mine. Remember when we first met? Elsa Fennon, Dieter Fry, Munt. How long ago was that? Twenty years. Twenty? Yes, yes, just short of twenty years. Good God. And even then, we were both supposed to be retiring. <laughs> so we were. You told me a story back then about seeing them burning books in Germany. And whenever books are burned... Men also will be burned. You said, apart from being scared and disgusted, you felt elated, was it? Because you recognised your enemy. This Carla sounds like the book-burning type to me. Men and women too, I don't doubt. Go for him. In all 20 years, Mendel, I've never got used to that lighter of yours. Reliable. You could wipe out entire libraries with it. But I wouldn't, nor would you. I lent Carla a lighter of mine once, or rather he took it, never got it back. You've actually met him? Briefly. I didn't know at the time who he was, what he'd become. I was trying to persuade him to defect. Utter failure. Maybe you'll have a chance to get the lighter back now. Oh, I was just an ordinary Ronson. But it was a gift from my wife, engraved to George from Anne. You really shouldn't have opened that second bottle. Built to last, a decent Ronson. Get it back. It's so lovely to have you back on these corridors, Mr Smiley. Of course, I was just a girl when you were more of a fixture here. Yes, you must have been. Oh, and I'm so looking forward to reading your book, if I'm allowed access to it. I'm afraid I won't be the one to decide that. Oh, um, Mr Smiley, um, speaking of access... I do apologise for the delay in getting you the file on Bill Hayden. No, no, you were right to clear it. Mr Enderby said you wrote the damn thing, so who else has a better right to damn well read it? <laughs> well, good night, Mr Smiley. Good night. Those corridors like my own ghost, and sometimes an entirely indifferent ghost. Indifference of age. Leaving through Hayden's file didn't feel like research. It was like an old man looking for a photograph in an album. He saw it once, can't remember it clearly, and may not recognise it if he finds it again. Is it like that for you, Carla? Do you ever wonder why we fight on, with death so close? I am not your twin. We are not each other's shadow. But maybe we are both causes of the same malady. Oh, do shut up. Look at you gazing up at one lit window like a boy expelled from school. Like an old man mooning around the church where he was married. And it's a dismal place, all white tiles and black drain pipes and the stink of cat. It's almost midnight. Find a cab, Paddington. The night sleeper for Penzance. You're looking well, Anne. Splendid. <laughs> Splendid? Not beautiful? Of course. Well, to be beautiful and Anne is one thing. To be beautiful and Anne's age will soon be another. Kiss me. Properly, you fool. 
You didn't think to pick up the morning paper at the station, did you? No, I'm sorry. Where's the Tieplip drawing? Sold. Times are hard. Yes. I'm going away for a bit. There's a job I have to do abroad, one that's rather important and difficult. Your job often is. That's been made clear to me many times. I don't think you should go to Bywater Street while I'm away. You've come all the way from London to Cornwall to tell me our house is out of bounds. That's what you told me on the phone last time we spoke, when you were as rude as I've ever heard you. Or are you telling me now it's out of bounds for good? Smiley gazes. You should tell me never to stop looking. You're allowed to speak at the same time. How long will you be away? Weeks, maybe longer. Staying where? In a hotel. Oh, well, there are plenty of them abroad. Big place abroad. Have you had breakfast? Yes. Well, shall we go for a walk then? We'll go out through the gun room. I want to see you in Wellington boots again. I'm in need of a smile. I'm a comedian, George. I need a straight man. I need you. Do you understand? I love you. Do you truly understand? Yes. You don't, please, please don't tell me you love me too. Of course you do. You know, I've been your agent instead of your wife. I think you'd run me very well. Are you still working for Lakin? No, it's a rather vague setup. Saul Enderby's taking an interest. Enderby, the mighty Saul himself. Well, well. Slipped away, haven't you? Slipped the leash. Saul will know. I'm sure he will. Good grief, he'll say. Here's a man about to set out on a hugely important, frightfully difficult mission that'll take him all over abroad and takes time off to visit his bitch goddess. You are a comedian. Now listen. This is all there is. You and I, I promise, the whistle's gone in your world and in mine. We're landed with each other. This job is to do with the people who ruined Bill Hayden. Ruined me? For goodness sake, George, you can't destroy Bill a second time. He's dead and gone. So much is. Dear God, you never knew how free you were. I had to be free for both of us. Wild kind of freedom. Women are lawless. All of them? The best of us. Bill was my anarchy. And what am I? My lord. My husband. My only love. I wonder what she saw in my face. I wasn't sure myself what I was feeling. She is remote to me. I know her entirely. She is nothing to me. She is all I want. Is there any such confusion in you, Carla? Does it frighten you? Do you ever dread becoming faithless? Hello, George. Welcome to Bern. Hello, Toby. You booked into the Bellevue? Yes. Good thinking. Lots of ways out of that place. I'll drop you there. We'll have a little tour first. Car's over here. Do you have all you need? People, cars? Got it all. Pavement artists, sound thieves, photographers, drivers, my own private army. An invisible army. Invisible and very, very careful, just like you wanted. I'm the best, you agree? Of course. 
And I've recruited only the best. We've got Harry Slingo, Pete Lusty, Canada Bill, Annie the Cat, the Minor Targan sisters. The big one got married. Can you believe it? <laughs> All that we've got, and 20 others just as good and just as careful. It's been lace curtains, tiptoe, and slow glances all the way. Good. And you've got his pattern. We have Gregorio's pattern and a lot besides. We're ready, George. No move until I say so. Don't insult me. He's a good guy, this Gregorio, you know, in lots of ways. My boys and girls all like him, especially the boys. They look at the wife he's got and they think, this guy you've got to admire. He smiles and he's polite and he treats people nice. And all the time he's married to a monster. She's a dragon, George. Which is good for us. Why is it good for us? Because there's a sweet little thing named Natasha who works in the Soviet Embassy visa section. Natasha, with hallelujahs, I bet, he screws twice weekly. And you know what, George? You have the pictures to prove it. Am I the best? I am. But is Gregoriev a good guy in other ways? Let me show you where he lives. This is Elfa now. I thought the Russians lived in Mori. So they do, but not the Grigoryevs. They did until three months ago, then they moved out here. They rent an apartment, no embassy input, personal basis. 3,500 a month, George. Grigoryev hands it over himself to the landlord. Cash? Monthly, in 100 notes. Again, pictures to prove it. They have two children at weekly boarding schools, only home at weekends. Here it comes, on the left. See the Mercedes in the driveway? Other staff use the embassy carpool, not Rigoriev. That beauty he bought three months ago. Second hand. Cash. Three months ago. Same time he moved out of Murray. Big leap for our man. Car, house, promotion. He's not first secretary anymore, he's counsellor, Grigoriev. And oh, there's so much more. Ready, George? Just give us the word. Take me to the hotel now. This is fancy, George. Like a little Versailles. I would have been happy with somewhere smaller, out of the way. No, good choice. First place in Bern where you might be expected, so who would look for you here? Thanks. Here's to burning and to success. Success. Tell me what else you've got on Grigoriev. The bank, George. We've got the bank in tune and the false identity. Dr. Glaser. Right. That's the name of the account he draws from every Friday. He and the horrible wife drive to Toon. He goes in and draws the cash while she waits outside or drives around the block a few times. Let me tell you, she is one hell of a bad driver. She is a danger to shipping. You have him going into the bank and coming out. Inside? George, this is Toby. Of course we have inside. Recorders in rucksacks, cameras in briefcases, handbags, you name it. We have his chit-chat with the cashier who obligingly addresses him as Dr. Glaser. We have him taking his weekly 10,000 in cash. Well done. It's a masterpiece. It should be at Cannes. You want a little light relief? Please. They have bicycles on the roof. Bicycles? On the roof of the car. Two bicycles. They drive to the sanatorium. They park half a mile down the avenue and Grigoriev pedals the rest. Every week he arrives at the sanatorium on a bike. Clips on the trousers, the business. This is him in disguise. A trained hood, Grigoriev is not. We haven't seen the missus on her bike. We have that to look forward to. You don't even smile, George. The sanatorium. Every week, Friday afternoon, he visits a 24-year-old girl named of Alexandra Borisovna Ostrakova. She's Russian, but with a French passport. Grigoriev is her uncle Anton. 
He stays maybe half an hour. He pays the asylum fee. He pedals back to the waiting dragon wife, and away they drive back to Bern. Alexandra Ostrakova, who is she, George? You'll know soon, Toby, I promise. What else? A courier from Moscow. He turns up at Grigoriev's door every Thursday, six o'clock. His name's Krasky. Everywhere else he goes with a companion. To Grigoriev, he goes alone. We have him going in, we have him coming out. Six occasions. Am I good? You're the best. Do we have enough, Toby? We have a hand of aces. I do so want to observe you, Carla. Get a sense of your presence, your manner, your bearing. Not in an interrogation room asking questions or refusing to answer questions. No, I want to see you when you're alone, off guard. If you ever ask. Maybe you're drinking good coffee and smoking a cigarette after lunch. Alone as I am now. Do your brows furrow at some recurring, worrying thought? And then perhaps you smile down at my lighter turning in your fingers, shaking your head at this extraordinary thought. Once you were young, once you were a boy, once upon a time the world was new and spring-like to you. George, the moment is close to perfect. He's walking into town. We know where he's going. Where? It's Sunday. He's heading for a place called the Platform next to the cathedral. They play chess there, outdoor chess, you know? Make two-foot pieces. He watches. We've seen him do this other Sundays. The dragon is risking her children's lives by driving them into the country. He's alone. We have three teams in good places. Do we go? George, we have to decide now. I truly think this is as close to perfect as we might get. Do we go? Yes, go. Have I taken another step closer to you, Carla? Or have you taken one towards me? Where am I? Who are you? Please sit down, Councillor. I will not sit down. I demand to speak to my ambassador immediately. I am a senior Soviet diplomat. You are Councillor Grigoryev of the Soviet Embassy in Berlin. Yes. Grigoryev. Not Glazar, as this one here said. He talked of banking irregularities. He mumbled something about my domestic arrangements. I have been kidnapped, subjected to violence. Mild scuffle only. Bit of a bump with Harry. Are you terrorists? And why show me your faces? Councillor Grigoryev. Grigoryev, right. And who are you, Al Capone? My ambassador, I demand to telephone him now, right now. What are you writing? Why won't you answer me? There are a number of photographs laid out on the table there. Once the councillor has looked at them, he is free to phone whomever he wants. If we start from the left here, councillor, we have you outside the bank in tune. What bank? I'm a diplomat, not a banker. And here we have you inside the same bank. Look at this one. Superb over-the-shoulder shot. We have caught the cashier's receipt beautifully. The name Glaser, clearly tied below your signature. Um, several of little Natasha. The one of you and her in the car is nothing short of spectacular, don't you think? Your wife and children have taken a drive to the Elfenau Woods. When will they be back? At two. She may be early, late. She's never late. You are spies. You are Western spies. It is better that you do not know who we are. 
Such knowledge can be a dangerous burden. Will you please stop writing and at least look at me? He doesn't even look at me. When you have done as we ask, you will walk out of here a free man. Neither your wife nor Moscow's centre will ever be the wiser. <laughs> oh, I'm a fool. I'm weak. I should have stayed in academia, but all for foreign music and clothes and a Mercedes for her. This one with a skull and a ridiculous hat. Here I am, a fool. And still he writes. Tell us about the girl in the sanatorium, Councillor. Alexandra Borisovna Ostrakova. Russian, but with a French passport. Why does he not even look at me? Councillor, if these photographs are distributed to the Swiss authorities, to your wife, <clears throat> to Moscow, the best I can imagine, the absolute best, you'll be in exile in your own land. <clears throat> Siberia, perhaps. And your wife will be sent there with you. Blackmail. Fifty blackmailed, just as I was blackmailed into looking after the mad girl. Tell me how they blackmailed you. Blackmail and conspiracy are everywhere. Conspiracy has replaced religion. Agents and spies are the new Jesuits. Did this coercion take place in Moscow? It began there. I'd been summoned from Bern to attend an economic conference. I am an internationally renowned authority on economics. I was. How did it begin? It was like your gang today. It began with a kidnapping. But the men in Moscow showed no violence, no bumping into me. You went with these men willingly. How many were there? Three. And I went because they ordered me to go, and they were members of the 13th Directorate. When did this take place? Close to midnight. I was on my way to my hotel. I meant the date, Councillor. September. September of which year? Which year? This year... If somebody says something happened in September, they usually mean the most recent September. Please give dates whenever appropriate. <laughs> and how am I to know when it's appropriate? I shall remind you if necessary. So, three men of the 13th Directorate <clears throat> approached you as you were returning to your hotel on the... The 4th of September this year, a few minutes before midnight. And they ordered you to go with them by car? Yes. To go where? I don't know. Did they blindfold you? Don't be absurd. They were officers, men of quality and rank, not thugs. But they didn't say where they were taking you. They said... Uh, <clears throat> they said I was to meet a great Soviet fighter. They said this man required me for an important task. It was an honour, but if I was disrespectful or I told lies, and he would know immediately if I did, I would never see my wife and children again. Three officers took you by car to meet him. Where did the meeting take place? I told you, I don't know. We drove all across town and into the countryside. I had no idea where we were. How long did the journey take? Uh, at least four hours driving fast, and then more slowly for another half hour. A narrow road through fir trees. And when we reached the house, I could see little of it. There seemed to be no lights on inside at all. They... They took me into the first room. It was in darkness, but there was a, a faint light under the door. They told me to knock. A voice told me to enter. I did. The room was virtually bare. It could have been a prison cell or, um, or a monk's cell because the little man behind the desk looked like a priest. He was smoking an American cigarette. You're sure it was American? I, I know the smell. What were his first words to you? Well, um... After sit-down Grigoryev, he talked for about ten minutes in great and intimate detail about my indiscretions with three different girls, one in Moscow, one in Potsdam, and one in 
What were the names of these girls? That is none of your business. And then he told me about the mad girl, her name you know. She was the daughter of a great Soviet hero who was living abroad, under cover, as you people called it, pretending to be a defector, a traitor, but in fact a hero. And his daughter was in a sanatorium near Bern, where he could not visit. I was to visit her instead, pay the asylum's fees, make sure she was being well cared for, and report back to Moscow. It was a simple matter of routine, and he'd been told that in routine I was excellent. Did you agree immediately? He offered threat and reward. The threat was he could ruin my career and my marriage. The reward was accelerated promotion to counsellor and considerable improvement in my living standards. Money? How much? Enough that my wife would be happy. Or less unhappy. So I said, yes, of course, sir, I would be happy to be the poor girl's substitute father. That is not what you would be. Alexandra's father is alive and well, and a Soviet hero and devoted to her. I am sorry, sir. I meant no disrespect. Call yourself an uncle, if you like. Her condition has been diagnosed as an advanced state of schizophrenia. In the Soviet Union, this form of illness is not sufficiently understood. In our hospital, she's been accused of paranoid reformist ideas, bourgeois decadence in her sexual behavior. She's been called a congenital social malcontent. This is not medicine, it's politics. In Swiss hospitals, a more advanced attitude is taken to such illness. But still, we must continue to observe her from here, through you. You will inform yourself weekly of her welfare, her progress. Make sure you have detailed reports from all the doctors who deal with her. Consult all nurses, too. You must satisfy yourself that the care she is receiving is of the highest order, thorough, advanced and kind. Make sure she has suitable books to read. Great books, Russian and European. I will provide a list. Find out her opinions of them, social and aesthetic, and, of course, if they give her pleasure. Describe to me as fully as you can her appearance and state of mind. Is she lucid? Is she articulate? Is she gregarious or sullen? Does she laugh? If she does, is the laughter pleasant to hear or perhaps disturbing? Is she clean in her personal habits? Are her fingernails trimmed and clean? Is her hair brushed and clean? Be very gentle with her. Tread very carefully. She is young still and of an extremely delicate nature. You may not always think so. She has been known to use foul language. She tells many lies. In lying she has the genius of madness. None of this is her fault. She is ill and extremely delicate. She does not know who she is or where she belongs. And her mother, sir? The mother is dead. You will not visit the girl on Friday. Why not? Tell your wife you've been so instructed by Moscow. Be as mysterious as you like with her. Blind her with mystery. We can promise you a warm welcome should you elect to make a new life elsewhere in the West. And may I say I think you are a humane and decent man caught in a net of circumstances beyond your understanding and control. Thank you. On Thursday, you'll have the visit from Krasky, the Moscow courier. <laughs> Why ask all the questions? You know everything. The report you give him will be written by us. I personally, Council, will write your final letter to the priest. Final? Yes. 
But whatever your long-term plans, you must remain at the embassy for at least another two weeks and be warned if you make the slightest error. Try any little trick. The priest will find out. He will destroy you. And even if you survive, your friendly welcome in the West will be a slam door in your face. Where will he come over, do you think? I'd say Berlin. Peter, he may not even have my letter yet. We have no idea where or when. We don't even know that he will come. Sorry, John. Oh, by the way, I had lunch with Anne in London last week. She was very keen to know how you are. Not where, of course. She didn't ask where. Any message I might take back to her? None. Enderby sent you, didn't he, Peter? Saul keen to know how I am, too. He knows I'm here. Hello, Peter. Good to see you, Toby. And you should have seen George burning our councillor. It was a classic. A master at work. But now, George, the man's become a nightmare. A total nightmare. In what way? You know what the councillor said to me this morning? His little Natasha's been asking strange questions. He's told her he won't make love with her again until she fully trusts him. He was drunk. Half nine in the morning. You must control him, Toby. Promises, threats, anything. He wants to defect tonight. No! Not yet. Forgive me, Toby, not yet. George. On the subject of Saul Enderby... He did wonder if your visit this afternoon is strictly necessary. The girl is worth risking his career to him. He steals for her, lies for her. He has to know whether she cleans her nails and brushes her hair. Don't you think we owe her a look? The sisters here don't understand God. They just can't grasp the old devil at all. They tell me God is love and lots of regulations. He's not. Love is not on the curriculum here and the regulations are on paper and papers for burning. No, no... No, no, you have to ride God like a horse because he kicks like a horse. So you have to ride him and ride him hard till he takes you in the right direction. And I can ride all devilish God even if I'm only four years old. God make me three, God make me two, God make me one, God make me unborn and nothing. Take me to my place on the moon. Look. Those are the marks of teeth. My own. I bite myself because I'm a saint and must have the proper marks. Sometimes. Sometimes I'm a saint. Do you like my blouse? It's very pretty. And my cardigan. I wear it like a cape because I'm told it is becoming. It is. And my skirt? I'm wearing nothing underneath. You look indifferent, but I know you're pretending. Who are you? I'm a friend of your Uncle Anton. He has the flu and can't be here today. He's not my uncle. I may be mad and only four, but I'm not a fool. You're supposed to ask me how I am. How are you, Alexandra? She has read at Hergenev and will soon move on to Tolstoy, but you've come to the wrong mad girl. I'm Tatiana. Oh, that's a beautiful name. So how is Tatiana? Invulnerable. Really? Oh, yes. Because of my father... He is so important, he can't possibly exist. But mm, if he doesn't exist, I know you must be wondering, why is everyone so afraid of him? I can tell you, because he might come in the night and kill their mothers. 
He killed mine. He rules at night, you see. When the hawks are asleep, my father will sway like an owl. Is it a long time since you saw your father? Do you remember him well? Once hated, never forgotten. He had small eyes. He sat in his car and watched me walk to school. He smoked all the time. I saw you arrive in your car. Did you? Yes. Do not believe me? It's black. Yes. Take me away in your big black car. I'll still be wearing nothing underneath. Who are you? I'm a friend of Anton. Who are you really? You have a kind face. Thank you. But of course you are a very dangerous man. All you people are. Have you met her father, the mysterious Ostrakov? No, sister, I haven't. I have yet to meet anyone who has. Alexandra says he's a phantom. Yes, she said something of the kind to me. Sometimes she lives in the dark. Sometimes she sees too much. Both are painful. Wait! Wait! I know who you are! Alexandra, go back inside at once. You're all the same people! Roll up your window. I understand, though. All the same people! Alexandra! I don't, it doesn't matter. I don't mind. This is outrageous behavior. I don't mind. You're all the same people and killed my mother. Oh, my God. Let's go, Alexandra. You can kill her again if you like. Connor, do you know? Just take me with you! Do you know how lost she is? Go now. Drive away. I wonder how long it took you, Carla, to destroy my letter. I imagine you read it only once and then gave it to the fire, the fire of your memory, your understanding. The first fact I gave you, the central fact, that we know the girl is your daughter, Tatiana. Everything else flows from that fact. Berlin, George. Remember when it was the world capital of the Cold War? Remember the tanks growling to keep their engines warm? When did you say your baby was due, Peter? March. What will you call it? I haven't really thought. All the rest in my letter to you, Carla. That you arranged your illegal departure from the Soviet Union, that you misappropriated public money and resources, that you ordered two murders on foreign soil, that you engineered the official execution of your own man. Of all of this, Tatiana is the symbol, the heart, the propagator. All your love for her is. And for all of this, because of your love, your peers will liquidate you. Come to us. We will make a home for you and for her. How will he look? Nondescript, I should think. And old. Those who come over that bridge are mostly old age pensioners. Why do pensioners come over? For work, to visit family. Oh, we don't know. We pensioners tend to keep ourselves to ourselves. <laughs> With us, Tatiana will be safe. 
the finest treatment and citizenship. You too will be safe, immune from prosecution for both murders, if you tell us all you know. George, it's only a possibility, just a thin chance, but someone's coming over. Could be George, he's small enough. You want to come outside? Anytime I think of this place, that's what I remember, the dark and the cold. You always expect a siren to wail up. Could happen, Peter. You see anything suspicious this side? Nothing. Good. Because all around you are my watchers and listeners. Telescopes and microphones, cameras, out-of-service taxis at our service. And even Peter Gwillem sees nothing suspicious. This is good. Now that is curious. The snow swarms and falls and billows everywhere in every direction. But it does not touch the watchtower in the middle of the bridge. It seems to avoid just that one place where the sentries are, where the guns are. They might shoot you yet, Carla. And maybe that would be a more fitting end, to die by the bullets of your own side. Because even if you do come, even if you tell us everything, there will always be your side. Please understand, I shall never think otherwise. See him. About halfway, I see him. Laborer. Walking not slow, not fast. Is it him, George? Is this all that happens? A small, frail old man walks across a bridge. You look like a poor man going to the funeral of a friend. And yes, you do look old. Are the stooped shoulders real or feigned? Real, I think. We are old, you and I. He's stopped. Dear God, he's lighting a cigarette. With my lighter, perhaps. To George from Anne, with all my love. Moving again. He's cool, whoever he is. Jesus, my heart stopped when he did. Listen, George, you and Peter walk to the bridge. You're just two ordinary pedestrians. Go to the bridge, it is normal. And if it is him, when he's over... We're out of here fast. It has to be him. George, triumph. There is no triumph. You have tortured, killed, spun a web of corruption everywhere. But I do not want these spoils, won by these methods. They're yours. You, I'm sure, felt no such scruple when you used my love, stained my wife forever by leading her into Hayden's scheming embrace. But there's no triumph. George, at last, I'll wait here. You go forward now, claim the prize. I don't know how I should address you. All I have is a code name, Carla, and that's a woman's name. I don't even know your military rank. And here you are. If you just go with my friends here, sir. George, 
You're a miracle. Get that bloody car up here before they come over that bridge and get him back. All your life. Fantastic. Go well, George. And there it is. On the cobbles, at the edge of a halo of streetlight, tilted slightly. To George from Anne. Glinting like fool's gold. Has no one else seen it for? Come on, old friend. It's bedtime. George, you won. Did I? Yes. Yes, well, I suppose I did. I said he had his staring look, his thinking about his hands look. The big fight was on. And Toby oh. says it couldn't have been fought better. Uh, Impossible without Toby. And his, uh, what was it your boss called him? His bizarre collection of misfits and outlaws. That's our kind of team. Toby said you carried the whole operation, George, like a thrush egg in your palm. I can assure you I didn't feel the confidence or balance that suggests. <laughs> I saw you wobble. Alarming, that was. A bit tetchy, was he? Mendel, he raised his voice. Good Lord. But, to quote Toby once more, you're a miracle, George. We'd best be off. Yes, one more of those. It'll be hands and knees up the steps. You two go on. I'll stay for a little while. Good night, George. Take care, Mr. Smiley. Good night. You light your cigarette with a match when you could be using our lighter. Why, George, why didn't you pick it up? I'm really not sure. Somehow there seemed no point. Sorry. No matter. Still, it ought to last. A decent Ronson. Smiley's unrespectable club, and they still never take on new members? No, we still don't. One generation only. When the last one drops, the doors will close. I hope you'll be the last. That'll be the headline in your obituary. Last of the unrespectables. So, you've won a great victory. I knew you must have when I saw you had on the special hangdog expression. Well, it was the methods, you see. I had to use my enemy's methods. Oh, don't delude yourself. When it comes to your work, George, you're the most ruthless man alive. Put it like this. It's true I may have removed a great threat, but a threat to what, exactly? That question arises more and more. Mendel? Isn't he worth protecting? Yes, he is. And I adore the man, so... Protect Mendel for my sake. Now, that is a noble cause. And you, too, of course. If I could protect you always. Anne. Anne. Is this all that happens? A frail old man sits in his club and searches his mind for a cause. In the final episode of Smiley's People, George Smiley was played by Simon Russell Beale. Anne Smiley was played by Anna Chancellor. Toby Esterhazy by Sam Dale.
Peter Gwillem by Richard Delane, Maria Ostrakova by Lindsay Duncan, Saul Enderby by James Lawrenson, Inspector Mendel by Kenneth Cranham, Grigoyev by Finley Welsh, Tatiana by Alison Pettit, The Registrar by Joanna Monroe, and Carla by Philip Fox. Smiley's People was dramatised for radio by Robert Forrest from the novel by John le Carre. The producer was Patrick Rayner. Thank you for listening, and don't forget to join us tomorrow for yet another amazing story.